welcome to Cover Stories with Chess Life, the U.S. Chess Federation's podcast that goes behind the scenes and more in-depth about each month's Chess Life magazine cover story. Make sure to listen to our family of U.S. Chess podcasts, which include One Move at a Time on the second Tuesday of each month, in which I talk to people who are advancing our mission statement, Ladies' Night, which drops on the third Tuesday of each month and that is hosted by our Women's Program Director, Jennifer Shahadi, and on the fourth Tuesday of each month, Chess Underground, hosted by our Assistant Director of National Events, Pete Karyanis, in which he examines the game's eccentricities, peculiarities, and theoretical novelties. All can be found at the podcast link on Chess Life Online at uschess.org. Welcome to our May edition of Cover Stories with Chess Life. I have with us women's grandmaster Tatev Abrahamian, a Glendale, California-based player. She is the 2004, 2011, and 2019 Women's Championship runner-up. Originally from Armenia, she came to the U.S. in 2001 and has represented the U.S. at the Olympiad since 2008. A graduate of Cal State University in Long Beach, California in 2011, she had a double major in psychology and political science. She is known as a commentator for her work at the St. Louis Chess Club, at such events as the Singfeld Cup, and more recently at the Cairns Cup. She is also an author, as besides her work for Chess Life, where she did write our cover story on the Cairns Cup, she wrote the 2016 chapter for the Singfeld Cup retrospective book. Women's Grandmaster Tatev Abrahamian, welcome to Cover Stories. Thanks. Thanks for having me. One of the things that I found interesting uh, as I was researching you, I, I, on your bio at uschesschamps.com, you, it said that there she met Grandmaster Judith Polgar, arguably the greatest women player of all time and the only women in the tournament. I was in complete awe, Tatev said. My first thought was, I want to be just like her. <laughs> I'm curious, what was it about Judith that just so captivated you, given that there are so many other top players as well? Uh, I didn't actually meet her as in, like, talk to her, but um, the Olympiad in 1996 was in Armenia, and that's when I started playing chess first. And my dad would take me to watch the games at the Olympiad almost every day. And uh, she was the only woman playing in the men's section, as it was called back then. And uh, to me, that was so inspiring and so unusual to see. And uh, I just thought that's such a cool thing to do. (laughs) And And I thought, that's what I want to do. That's who I want to be. Did you ever have a chance to play against her? No. And now currently, would you describe yourself as a full-time chess professional, as a player, writer, announcer, teacher? Yeah, definitely. But uh, I was actually looking at my... uh, history of my tournaments and I realized I've only played in five tournaments last year so as a chess player I don't know how much of a professional I can call myself <laughs> well uh, but as we said there's other ways of being a chess professional you're you're certainly become well known for your announcing duties at uh, the St. Louis Chess Club and you you now have some writing credits under your belt and I, I can also direct listeners uh, for more background on Tatev uh, November 2017 Ben Johnson interviewed her for his perpetual chess podcast and you can find that in the archives. And in that interview, you, you talk about being a chess teacher as well. Are, are you still teaching um, students? Yeah, I am. Uh, I have a few private students, but I also work for a chess academy, the American Chess Academy. And um, we actually have a chess school in several parts of LA, and I teach there four times a week. So it sounds like 100% of your income comes from chess-related activities, right? Yeah, yeah, that part is true. I was just uh, thinking more as a player. <laughs> so th- those of us who are also earning a living in the chess world who aren't players uh, 
we, we, we view the people that earn their money by playing chess exclusively as, as something over and above chess professionals, it seems. Uh, uh, I don't know, chess gods? Maybe that's the term? Yeah, I mean, there's so few people who actually do that in the chess world, right? I mean, I think there's just so much money in chess, it's just not... A lot of it comes from playing chess. Now, the the Karen's Cup, which is what brings you to the show, uh, actually had a, a fairly significant prize fund. Uh, first place was forty thousand dollars. So uh, the the opportunities are just increasing by seemingly leaps and bounds, especially in the United States, thanks to activities in St. Louis. Yeah, that's definitely true. Uh, when I first time I played in St. Louis Chess Club at two thousand nine U.S. Championship, I think. They had just the U.S. Championship, maybe some local tournaments, and now their schedule is just full. If you look at their schedule, like every month they have some kind of an event, and even the norm tournaments, actually I'm going to be playing one in one next month, actually has a prize fund in it, like for every place, 1 to 10, which I think is kind of unheard of. Let's talk more about the Karen's Cup, and especially as this May issue of Chess Life is a special issue devoted to women and women in chess. Um, talk about the event just from a perspective as a female player. Um, no, I mean, uh, it was very unusual for me because I'm in St. Louis so much for all these events. So, and, you know, we always see the same people and all of a sudden it was like 10 new people who came to town who didn't know anything. A lot of them have never been to St. Louis. Well, I guess eight of them, two of them are Americans. Uh, they've never been to St. Louis. It was very interesting to see new players. We had some new commentators. It was um, a lot of freshness, and it's uh, it's very rare we see all these top women come. I, I mean, okay, in St. Louis, I guess we never see. And in general, we never, very rare we see this kind of a close women's tournament with um, top players playing and with such a huge uh, prize fund. So it was very interesting to just watch it and see how they approach their games. And um, a lot of them are... Real prof- well, I guess most, all of them are real professionals. They just play chess. And that's also something, um, the kind of tournament we don't see very often. Because a lot of the women's tournaments are just the Grand Prix and the World Cup and the World Championship, which are um, events like very specific to qualify to something, not just uh, in a round-robin tournament, just for top women to play for nothing but the prize, basically. Do you think that there that this event will kind of serve as a springboard for other um, similar types of events in the U.S. and around the world? Or is the St. Louis situation just so specific to St. Louis that it, it may not lead to other uh, opportunities? Mm, good question. I'm not sure. Uh, because I, I think for someone, for anyone in the world to organize this, they would need to be able to advertise it. So I guess they would have to see it as a good advertising opportunity. Maybe they can pair it with another strong tournament and uh, have them run side by, uh, side by side. But um, I'm not sure if it like actually encourage others to organize tournaments like this. And you know, certainly one of the difficulties is just the international flavor of the event. And you know, whenever you deal with a uh, international event and inviting players from around the world. You have to deal with government red tape. And in fact, you write a little bit about that in the Chess Life article, uh, saying that some of the players shared visa horror stories at the opening ceremony. Do you remember any of the specific stories and any that stand out that you can share? Yeah, because um, I forgot when the World Championship was in Iran two or three years ago, and a lot of them played there, which they get the Iran stamp, which made it problematic for them to come to the U.S because all these uh, players from EU countries who can come to the U.S. fairly now had to get a visa. And actually, now that Zagnita said that, <clears throat> like the day before 
like she heard she doesn't have a visa and i think in the morning she got her like eight hours before her flight she got her visa to come and actually harika posted on twitter that uh it's so disappointing i mean something like oh, i'm an athlete i shouldn't have to worry about this and now i cannot play in the strong tournament and i think a lot of people um like she couldn't get a appointment to get a visa in India, and then I think a lot of people started retweeting it and got a lot of attention. So eventually, she did get her visa very last minute, which is very difficult because for a tournament like this, you know, you like it's so much pressure. You don't know you're going, you know, you're going because a lot of these players, their schedules are full, so for them to fit in a tournament already is difficult and have it hanging. Like you don't know, like day before, if you're going to a tournament, that's just um, it's kind of nonsense. Mm-hmm. And you were part of the live commentary team uh, there. The our, our listeners have uh, that that enjoy these comment uh, commentary sessions have gotten used to Jennifer, Maurice, and Yasser, yourself, Christian, Jarilla, um, as being regular part. But there were some new faces and voices doing commentary now. Talk, talk a bit about who joined this time. Uh, well, actually, my main job usually is not commentary, it's doing journalism. So commentary, I think it was my, it was actually my first time doing live commentary. So for the English commentary, they had the same team of Jen, Maurice, and Yasser. For Russian commentary, they had Almir Skripchenko and, um, oh my god, her name escapes me. <sighs> she does all the commentary for Fide and... Um, I, yeah, I'm sorry, I can't, I can't remember the name myself. <laughs> oh no, this is so embarrassing. Uh... <laughs> Okay, I'll come back to it. Uh, but, uh, I mean, it's really embarrassing. I cannot remember her name. Uh, but, uh, yeah, they have the Russian comments. So I think they made a point to hire as many women as possible. And um, so they had two women commentators for that, doing Russian commentary. And for live commentary, it was me and Tanya. As an outsider looking in, doing that live commentary for hour after hour just seems like it must be incredibly a draining experience. Is that so? Or... Is it ener- energizing in its own way? Uh, I think if you're doing in front of camera, that's um, because, you know, you have to be poised and you have to make sure. Because if you say something embarrassing, then it's just there forever. But uh, live commentary is more laid back and, you know, you interact with your crowd and you ask questions. And um, if you make a mistake, then it's not such a big deal. Someone will point it out and you just kind of move on. And, I mean, you're going to be... Even if we didn't have an audience, we'd still be looking at the games and talking about it because it was interesting. And so I, I think that job actually doing live commentary is uh, it's actually quite enjoyable. Before you were a, a college student and as you uh, uh, just shortly after you came to the U.S., you started racking up wins in our U.S. chess scholastic ranks. And I, I, I thought it would be fun to kind of look at a blast from the past. Uh, before you and I knew each other, uh, before I even worked for U.S. Chess, I wrote an article for Chess Life on the 2003 National K-12 when you won the ninth grade section. And oh, really? yeah, and, and I, 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 I want to read something where I wrote specifically about you. Uh, and at the end of the tournament, oh and see if if you even recognize the young girl I'm writing about. And don't worry, it's 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 a good thing. <laughs> oh, okay. Before we do that, I have to say the commentary is Anastasia Karlovich with um, uh, Skripchenko for Russian commentary. I mean, I feel really embarrassed that her name escaped me, but yeah, there were the two players uh, doing commentary. 
Well, good. I, 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 I liked how you were able to pull up the name relatively quickly. So, so good. Um, so here's what I wrote in the, uh, in, in chess life back in 2004, about the 2003 national K-12, uh, the individual competitions provided some thrilling finishes with the ninth grade section featuring the most exciting game of the tournament. Tatav Abrahamian of Los Angeles at 23:45, the highest rated player in the tournament played Atlanta's Kazem Gulamali, Georgia's highest rated scholastic player at 21:31, for the championship in the final round. After 36 moves, the position was roughly equal but dynamic and complicated by the clocks, which were down to less than five minutes each with five-second delay in effect. After a wild time scramble, uh, during which Cosm was advancing his B and E pawns and Tatev had connected past G and H pawns, Tatev queened after first sacrificing her bishop for Cosm's E pawn, and with 17 seconds on both clocks, Cosm tipped his king. The 15 spectators broke into applause, the only game so honored. Abrahamian appeared almost bored throughout the tournament, right up to the moment when she sat down across from Gulamali. However, the last round struggle took everything she had, and during the last few minutes, she was sitting straight up, chin cradled in thumb and forefinger, ankles crossed, and her left foot shaking. When Gulamali resigned, Abrahamian appeared overcome with emotion and her face flushed as she held both sides of her head to regain some equilibrium. Does this ring a bell at all for you, Tata? <laughs> <No. laughs> that's such a great description. I mean, I can kind of picture it because I think I still sit like that when I'm thinking, um, when I went to chess for it. Uh, no, actually, my memory isn't that great, so I don't remember. I know I played in two scholastic events in... Uh, uh, eighth grade and ninth grade championships, but um, I actually don't remember the details. But thank you for writing that. Oh, you're, you're welcome. So you don't you did ended up not playing in the national high school ever? No, I've never played in many scholastic events. Well, so I'm I'm curious about that, especially as we just wrote how you had success in the ninth grade section. Uh, was there a specific reason for for not uh, trying for the national high school championship? I mean, uh, I'm not sure. Maybe because I had just moved to the United States, I didn't know how significant they were or anything. But I also remember that I was pretty high rated. I think maybe I was number one or two for my age. And there was a pretty big gap uh, between uh, players that followed me. And I just, I don't know. Hmm. I just, I guess maybe didn't think it was important enough. Okay. Also, I don't think at the time I traveled a lot. I mean, when you had just moved to the United States, the traveling uh, would be financially difficult to do. Right, right. Um, uh, that's one of the things you talked about in your interview with Ben Johnson uh, uh, about kind of. It was actually financial reasons were one of the main reasons you you immigrated or your parents immigrated, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So and so this was only a few years after that. So I'm sure it was difficult, especially being out in Los Angeles, as most of our national scholastics tend to be uh, towards the east coast or center of the country. So it's 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 a bit of a plane trip to get there. No, I was actually thinking, I think one of them was in Dallas, right? One of the tournaments I played in, another one was in Miami or Georgia. Well, so the one that I just wrote about was in Atlanta. Ah, okay. And I think the other one that I played in was in Dallas. Uh, prob probably so. In fact, um, as we were recording this, the National Junior High Championship will be this coming weekend in Dallas, uh, Grapevine, Texas specifically. Um, so... Tatev, we also do our best question contest with, with each episode. But before we get to that, uh, I, I want to do something that I hope you'll find fun. 
Uh, your love of penguins is famous in the chess world. Uh, <laughs> and you, you talk a bit about how it, that it just kind of took on a life of its own um, in your interview on perpetual chess. So I just want to take this in a different, different way. Uh, one of our listeners who wrote in with the best question, I did not select his question for it, but I'm going to have you try to win the $50 gift certificate for him in a different way. I've worked up a penguin trivia contest just for you. Oh, no. I've, <laughs> I've got 12 questions here. Uh, they are all legitimate questions. Um, and I'm, I've decided that if you get six out of 12 questions right, our listener, Broadly Dupree of Charlotte, North Carolina, will win a $50 gift certificate to U.S. chess sales. So are you ready to put on your Jeopardy-type thinking cap, Tatev? Uh, multiple choice questions at least uh, multiple choice and true or false i'm i'm, I'm not going to oh, make okay, it that okay. hard for you yes yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh and i i should ask have you ever actually studied penguins or is it just you just enjoy seeing penguins watching videos uh is it is it that or have you actually read books so that you might actually be prepared more than i realized for this little trivia contest <laughs> No, I'm actually not prepared. You know, for the US Championship uh, opening ceremony, the drawing of colors, they had like stuffed animals and they had numbers attached to them. And for women, they didn't have a penguin specifically because I knew that they knew I would pick it. And then it would be unfair for them to know my pairing ahead of time. So I actually had to switch with Fabi. Okay. So let's get started. Question number one. Okay. In uh, so I think this may actually be the only one that isn't a true, false, or a multiple choice question. Oh, no. um, in 2014, Penguin Books merged with what major U.S. book publisher? Mm. Penguin Books. Oh my God, I have no idea. <laughs> okay, we're going to put an X down on that one, and it's Penguin. Okay. They're now known as Penguin Random House. Ah, okay. So now that you mention it, no, I've actually seen that. Um, question number two. Today is April 22nd. True or false, World Penguin Day falls in April of each year. Yes, true. That is true. It's actually... I think it's April 20th, actually. Uh, April 25th is the date that I found. Oh, 25th. Um, question number three. Uh, this is a multiple choice. How many unique species of penguins are there? Five, 18, 32, 64, the same number of squares on a chessboard. 18. Oh, very good. That is correct. <laughs> you knew that one. It sounded very confident about that. Yeah, because I've seen like photos that list them and I actually didn't. I think it was maybe 13 or 17, but uh, 18 was close enough. Okay, you see, you're already two out of three. So I think you've got this in the bag. Okay, I need four. four more okay. So question number four. The penguins at the St. Louis Zoo are housed in the Dr. Jeannie and Rex Sinkfield Penguin Pavilion. True or false? False. Correct. It I is do false. That like every year. <laughs> it is actually named the Dennis and Judy Jones Family Humboldt Haven. Question number five. Penguins can stay underwater for how long? Five minutes? Twenty minutes? Thirty-two minutes? Sixty-four minutes? The same number of squares on a chessboard. Ooh. Okay, this seems like tricky. Probably not 64. Probably not 32. 32 seems very specific. Or maybe it's 32. So I'm down to 5 and 20. 
I should have had the Jeopardy countdown music ready. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't going to be like 10 minutes. Else. Uh, five minutes or 20 minutes. 20 minutes seems a lot, but five minutes doesn't seem like enough. Let's go with five minutes. I'm sorry. It was 20 minutes. Uh, and that is a surprising uh, amount of time for uh, a bird to be able to hold its breath. Okay, so number six. Penguins can live for how long? Up to 14 years? Up to 20 years? Up to 44 years? Up to 64 years. The same number of squares on a chessboard. Oh, again, it's 14 and 20. I know the oldest living penguin is 28. Uh, I think it's 14. Uh, it, 20 is the information I have. Oh, no! <laughs> okay, true or false. It jinxed me. You said I have it in the bag. <laughs> um, true or false. Other than extinct species, penguins are the only species of flightless bird. That are what? Uh, are... Are, so, other than extinct species, mm-hmm. penguins are the only species of flightless bird. False. Correct. There's actually about 40 species of flightless birds. Question number eight. Penguin nesting areas are called pawn feathers, bishop babies, rookeries, queenslands. Oh my god, those all sound like made-up words. <laughs> <laughs> Can you read them again? Sure. Pesti- uh, penguin nesting f- areas are called pawn feathers, bishop babies, rookeries, queenslands. Mm. So the ones that is not true, are, are the other ones made up words or are they actually? Um, I Correct. I, I made up the three incorrect answers. That's what I thought. So I would see. See, which was what? R- Rookeries? Yeah. Yeah, you are correct. Oh, my. <laughs> so I'm up to four. Now, uh, uh, let's see. Actually, I think you're higher. We are at one, two, three. Yes, you have four. So you need two more out of... Uh, you just need to get 50% more right. Okay. To keep from overheating, penguins pant like dogs, sweat like humans, float in the ocean, build special snow forts. See? No, they do pant like dogs. <gasps> Did they? Yes. Question number 10. Penguin's black and white coloring is called chessboard camouflage. True or false? False. Yeah, correct. It's called counter shading. So, out of the last two questions, you just need to get one right. True or false? Some prehistoric penguins were very large, growing nearly as tall and heavy as a human. True. Correct. Yeah, that one I actually knew. Oh, well, good. And and, and with one question left, uh, much like Jennifer Yu at the U.S. Women's Championship, all the suspense is out and you have already won this contest. But we're going to give you question number 12 uh, just anyways. Um, how many countries have featured emperor penguins on their stamps? One, 30, 64, the same number of squares on a chessboard, or every country that issues stamps has had an emperor penguin stamp? Oh my god, that'd be amazing. One thirty sixty four. Why would anyone have a penguin on their stems? There are a lot of countries, though, so 30? Correct. Very good. You got 7 out of 12 right, Tatev. So I, I, I think you get to keep the Penguinovich in your Facebook uh, name. <laughs> 
Wait, I don't actually win anything from this, right? You did not win, but okay. you won a $50 gift certificate to U.S. Chess Federation sales for our listener, Bradley Juperi of Charlotte, North Carolina. Mr. Juperi, your certificate will be in your email inbox by the time you hear this. So uh, uh, c- congratulations, Tata. I-, I hope you thought that was fun and not too stressful. No, 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 no. It was awesome. <laughs> Okay, so we will now move on to someone else's chance to win a $50 certificate by uh, for our uh, best question contest. Uh, it is sponsored by U.S. Chess Sales, the official chess shop of the U.S. Chess Federation and the largest chess retailer in the United States. From chess books, software to DVDs, from chess pieces to clocks to computers, U.S. Chess Sales is your complete one-stop chess shop. With over 5,000 items in stock, it offers same-day shipping and low-price guarantee. Find it cheaper at any specialty chess retailer, and they'll gladly match them. Shop today at www.uscfsales.com. Now, our first question, uh, we, and thank you to all our listeners that submitted questions. Uh, I'm going to read a few of them before we get to our best question. The first one comes from Coach Jay Stallings uh, out in your neck of the woods of California, Tatev. Mm-hmm. He wrote, U.S. Chess has started a new division dedicated to women and announced grants for female-focused programs. Do you think that other nations will see this and realize that they need to follow suit, or will they just fall behind? Mm, Great question. Um, um, uh, Maybe it will depend on how things go in the U.S., and... If there is um, significant improvement in the number of women who play chess in the U.S. and the, the players who do play become significantly stronger, like let's say if we win a medal at the Olympiad, and then we come back, can come back to this and say, oh, because of this initiative, because we got funding that helped, um, you know, like uh, our team to train, or it helped our players to get coaching, some kind of coaching, or play in tournaments or something like that, maybe. It will um, set precedence, but I, I don't know. I, I feel like other countries are kind of set in their ways. So there are countries who already have a lot of fundings, and there are countries who don't. And um, it's not something that comes by easily. And I mean, there's a big movement in the U.S. Uh, to focus on encouraging more girls to play chess, but uh, I'm not sure how true it is in other countries. I- I actually, as I read this question, it made me wonder, are you aware, because I'm not, are you, are you aware of any other country that has a specific women's program and even a, something like a women's program director uh, like we have with Jennifer Shahadi? Um, no. Mm, I mean, uh, I know in some countries, like in Armenia, they have, they pay uh, their Olympic team members and they have training, but that's just for the Olympic teams, which is not very uncommon. Um, and chess is so popular in Georgia for women, They've, in, like historically, so I don't know if they have anything special for women there. I mean, if I have to think for one country, maybe I would think of Georgia. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, like even in China, I'm thinking they have all these strong players, but they also have all these strong male players. So I think there isn't one specifically for women. I think they just probably just trying to popularize chess in general. Mm-hmm. Um. So Coach Jay had an, another question that's actually a series of questions all rolled into one. He writes, four of the top nine female players in the U.S. are between 15 and 17 years old. Jennifer Yu and Annie Wang are among them. Is there a changing of the guard coming, or is that yet to be seen? 
you, Irina Krush, and Anna Zatonsky have been the top three for so many years and surely have been role models for these young prodigies. Is it tough to see them both as compatriots for the U.S. team and competitors at events such as the U.S. Women's Championships? Um, well, I think eventually there is going to be a change and because... Uh, okay, Anna and Irina, they're definitely significantly stronger than everyone else, but, um, you know, they've been there for so long, and you know, eventually that also has to change. Because if we look at uh, our top 10 in general, like, who was, I'm thinking of the US Championship 10 years ago, and there are so many names who don't even play chess anymore, and we have all these new players coming in, and we have uh, let's say Sam Savian, Ray Robson, and uh, Jeffrey Zhang. So obviously the same thing eventually has to happen for women too. Because what's the alternative? Like chess is just going, <laughs> women's chess is just going to die, and eventually all these new players are going to come in. And uh, maybe if not now, because they're still at school, they I don't know which direction they're going to take. And a lot of them are still inexperienced. They're um, very streaky players. Their ratings go up and down. Because even before uh, the U.S. Championship, Jennifer rating, like I looked at the list and I just, because we played in the Olympia, she was playing next to me, she was winning all her games in the U.S. Championship, I looked at the list and I was like, where did all her rating go? Now she just had a couple of bad tournaments and um, the rating, ratings just go up and down so much. But I, I think eventually we will see new, new names in uh, our top three, top five. Yeah, it, it's interesting when you say that the names from 10 years ago uh, that, that, that kind of disappeared, uh, certainly the difference between now and then, the, the, the landscape is so different with uh, what has been happening out in St. Louis, which started 10 years ago. Um, I, I, I suspect we're more likely to hold on to these names uh, and of players just making it more of a career and a lifelong pursuit rather than viewing it as, oh, there's, there's just no future in it for me. No, I mean, I, I really hope so. And um, to answer the second part, is it, I think you said, is it hard to see them as competitors and as teammates? Right. Yeah, I mean, of course, I enjoyed having Jennifer more as a teammate than a competitor when I couldn't even keep up with her in the U.S. Championship. But, uh, you know, the Olympic is something I really care about a lot. It's uh, probably the most, it's definitely the most special tournament to me. So I do like to see, this player is getting stronger, so you know, our team can actually compete for uh, Olympiad medals. And actually, we've always been very competitive, but obviously the stronger we are, the more um, experienced these younger players become, the better chances we will have. And uh, I do think, like, I, um, I'm not going to call myself an, uh, a role model for them. I don't know how they see me, but uh, I, I do hope they can look at... Um, us in a way that, you know, they see us making a living out of chess and it inspires them to consider it at least, not as a player, but, uh, you know, just realize that um, they can make a money in chess, money, they can make money in chess so they don't have to, I mean, obviously getting an education is a very important thing to do, but uh, at least it's something that they can consider, maybe take some time off before college or after college and uh, see what how far they can go in chess and if it's a lifestyle or career choice they want to consider. Now, when, when you played in college, you did not play on a college chess team. Is that correct? Correct. Were there any chess opportunities for you in school or were you completely focused on academics at that time? I was still actually competing a lot. I would still play in world uh, juniors. I would take some time off. Like uh, when I talked to my college professors, they seemed understanding and they allowed me to make up my work. So, work, so actually, I did manage to take 
uh, a lot of time off. But like, I didn't go to an Ivy school, and I actually asked Jennifer where she wants to go to school because she's junior, and she said she's gonna apply to all the Ivy Leagues. So I think once you're in Ivy League college, that uh, makes life a little more difficult. Mm-hmm. Although this year, um, Harvard made it to the Final Four of college chess. Yeah, yeah, I saw that. That's actually really amazing because they qualified ahead of so many like professional teams. Yeah, exactly. So our next question comes from former U.S. women's champion, Dr. Alexi Root. She asks, what would you like your career to look like five years from now? Uh, I, I like what I do. I like my lifestyle. I like the jobs that I do, but uh, I, I would like to improve as a chess player still. I still have ambitions in chess. I would like to see my rating go up, get my I am title, maybe try to get a GM title, at least feel like I'm competitive enough um, to be aiming for it. Do you feel like you need to make more international trips to get those norms, or are we getting to the point where we have enough norm opportunities in the U.S. that you can just stay on our shores? Uh, I think I just need to make playing a prior, more of a priority because I just do so many other jobs. Like I'm in St. Louis so much working, which is great because it gives me opportunity to not have a 9-to-5, be as flexible as I want, and still may be able to make a living. But um, I think sometimes when you become a little comfortable, then because playing chess is so difficult and everything else, I think compared to playing chess is so much easier. So when you have the two options, uh, you know, it's kind of want to lean towards the more comfortable one. Right, right. So our last couple of questions come from Judith Zari of uh, Bay Area Chess. Um, her first question is: Is it good or bad to have women's specific titles like WGM? Mm-hmm. That's a difficult question. Like, I actually, I'm not sure because I will say, okay, I, maybe whatever I say can sound hypocritical because I have benefited from it. But when we have these titles, I don't know if in the long term, and I, I, I know, like, I've heard Jennifer Shahadi say that women are not stupid, that they understand that women's and men's, like, open general titles are different. And of course they do, and we do. But, um, you know, when you... I don't know if it just by default kind of sets a lower bar because once you reach to a certain level, then you're like people, you know, you, you get this kind of recognition, you get um, this grandmaster title that um, some people actually think is um, the woman's grandmaster title is um, so, so significant that this is something you should be really aiming for. So I, I don't know if it actually hinders girls or encourages them. Mm-hmm. It, it absolutely is a difficult question, um, and it, it's it's one of those things where it's it's so easy to see all the various arguments on all the sides that it's hard to, I, I, as um, much of a cop out as it sounds, it, it feels like it's one of those only time will tell type of questions. Yeah, I, I think maybe in the short term, if you want to get more girls to play, maybe it's uh, you know it's good because. Um, then you can get these titles a lot easier than obviously the Grandmaster title and it's more encouraging. But I don't know if it makes girls just compete against each other or it uh, just by default sets the bar higher. Mm-hmm. And then our final question also comes from Judith Sorry, uh, And Judith, uh, I have selected this as our best question and your $50 gift certificate is waiting for you in your email inbox. I selected this as the best question because it speaks to the theme of this May issue of Chess Life. And um, Tata, what her question is, is what are your overall ideas on how to get more girls into chess? Oh my God. This 
<laughs> Would you like to go back to, to another penguin quiz? Yes. <laughs> Please. Um, uh, uh, what I, I do see a gross plan to just Yeah, there are like already so many initiatives to do that. Um, just to get girls started to play chess or to stay in chess? You know what? Let's make it as broad as possible. Um, I guess, what what what's what's a good starting point? How do we uh, get girls who whom whom might see some people playing chess uh, and maybe don't aren't thinking, oh, that's not for me? How do you change their mind and say, yeah, it it is for you? Mm. Uh, let's see. Well. Um... And from my own experience from teaching, when I do after-school programs, there are already a lot of girls playing, actually. I've had some after-school programs where I had way, not way more, but more girls than guys. But in the chess school where I teach, where, you know, they're, I, I can't say professional, but like a little more serious than just after-school programs. We have uh, very few girls playing, and there are a little older kids too. Especially in the older groups, we have like one or two girls. Um uh, I'm sure. Well, you know what? Let 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 let's turn it inward on yourself. How how did you get started, and what kept you playing? Well, I kind of I got started accidentally. I actually I was at my dad's work, and he was like cleaning his desk, and he had a chest, like small chess set. So I just asked him, um, like, what is this game? And he uh, taught me how to play. And then he thought the best way for me to learn is to watch him play with his friends. So I just watched him and I was able to pick it up. And well, I grew up in Armenia. In Armenia, it's uh, a lot easier to get into chess because it's so popular. To Like, everyone plays chess. Everyone follows chess. Uh, the chess players are the heroes of the country. We have a chess school that you can go to. Like, everyone knows. It's a small country. It's very centralized. <clears throat> So it's not like, you know, you're trying to find a chess school, you Google it and you find like 10 different ones, <clears throat> like it is now in some places, or you found zero, in, like as in other places. And then I started taking lessons. And again, in Armenia, it's, um, it's different. You don't just take lessons, just um, like coaches won't take you unless you think, um, they, unless they think you have some kind of potential. And in the US, a lot of parents take their kids to chess because you know they want them to do something like intellectual they want they to get better grades and something like that um but uh, you know in armenia maybe it's different now but you basically take your kids to chess because you want them to become chess players so when i started doing that i was like taking lessons like three times a week for several hours and uh, you know once you do that <laughs> it helps you improve a lot and once you improve a lot and you start winning then it's already very encouraging and very um, uh, fulfilling. Right. And now certainly you were identified very early on as someone who had talent and was someone uh, worthy of them uh, investing resources in. Uh, but in other cases, is did, did Armenia have a similar issue like we have where boys and girls are about 50-50 uh, in the early grades, but then there's this real sharp drop-off of girls leaving chess? Mm, actually, yeah, I have to think about it. Because when I was playing, we also had separate girls and boys tournaments uh, to qualify to tournaments like World Youth. And now I'm thinking of uh, the players from my generation the ones that I grew up with and who's left and who's disappeared. And, you know, there are just a few guys that 
that grandmaster they were around and everyone else just kind of went on to the different things. Uh, I don't, I can talk about, um, I don't know, like, I, I, I don't know at what age they start dropping out or what happens uh, in Armenia because I did live at a pretty young age, so I, I didn't really follow to, to see what happened with uh, players my age and when they decided to stop playing chess and uh, all things like that. You also mentioned, uh, or, or I mentioned at the very beginning, about how Judith Polgar was inspiring for you. Uh, do you do you think that uh, role models and heroes are a key component of, of of keeping young people interested and involved in chess? Yeah, I think representation is important. I think um, actually this has happened to me once. Uh, I was actually having, I just had a really bad game and I was just so upset. And uh, and then this, at that moment, this uh, parent came up to me and she told me, you know, like, my daughter looks up to you so much. And every time she feels like giving up, I tell her, no, you see Tata is there and she's playing and she's fighting and you have to do too. And like, it was such a um, meaningful thing for me, for someone, uh, you know, to come up and say to me when I was feeling so down. But uh, yeah, I think it's important and um, like, I don't want to give my like I can't give myself a lot of credit, but I don't know if it means a lot to girls when they when I play in Southern California and they come and see me and um, I don't know if that inspires them, but maybe it does. When I play in the open section and I play on the top boards, and if it's something they aspire to, but yeah, definitely uh, representation is important. To you know, when you see someone who looks like you, who you can identify with that definitely inspires you the, the way Judith inspired me. I, I'm sure she's still, even though she doesn't play chess anymore, she's still going to inspire generations. Yes, yes. Now, this podcast will be dropping on May 7th. Um, so what, what's coming up next for you as a as a player or as a, as a commentator? No, uh, at the end of my April, and first of all, I have to say, I think I completely avoided Judith's question, but... Um, no, I, I think mean, we got there in, in a roundabout way. We got there. Okay. So I, I hope she feels the same way too. Maybe she was looking for some ideas because I know she's very involved in, uh, well, she, I think one of the people who runs Bay Area Chess and she had a woman's, she wanted to do a woman's only, a girl's only program. And actually she invited me to teach and we tried doing it online and uh, I think it didn't pick it up, pick up, but, um, uh, maybe she was <laughs> looking for some ideas from me, and I don't think I gave her any. <laughs> uh, as far as what's coming up for me, is uh, actually I'm going to be, there's a tournament in Denver, and they're doing a girls tournament where I'm going to be a guest, and I'm going to be playing in, that, uh, in Denver Open. And then in May, I will be back in St. Louis for the first leg of the Grand Chess Tour. I'll be the journalist for Abidjan, which is a very cool um going to be a very cool event, the first uh, major tournament in Africa where the world champion is going to be playing in. And then I will stay in St. Louis. I'll be playing in a jam round tournament, which uh, I'm really planning on preparing for very seriously and uh, trying to, um, I don't know if I can compete for a jam now, but at least uh, get my rating up, get some, um, some good games in. Now that you're doing more journalism and commentary, um, how... Have you given any thought to writing your own chess book? No, not realistically. I, I wouldn't even know what to what to write about, actually. Even the chapter that I had to write was so, I don't know, I was so nervous about it. And actually, it did help me out a lot, but uh, cause I, actually, it's going to be published in a book, and people, 
because some of the things you publish online, you kind of think, are people even reading this? But this one is actually going to be in the book, and it felt so permanent. And uh, it was so difficult for me to write because I just froze. Like the pressure of it was so, was so much. Uh, well, it, it all turned out turned out well. Uh, listeners, if the, the book she's referring to is, is called The Sinkfeld Cup, um, celebrating five years, and you can get it at, uh, I believe, through the Q Boutique uh, website at um, at the World Chess Hall of Fame. Uh, and Tatev wrote the chapter about uh, 2016. And the other uh, authors we had in that book were uh, Jennifer Shahadi, Maurice Ashley, Yasser Sirwan, and Alejandro Ramirez. And it, it, it's a wonderful coffee table book celebrating the first five years of, of, a, uh, of a really beautiful event. Well, Tatev, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, thank you for being a good sport about our first ever Penguin Quiz on uh, Cover Stories with Chess Life. So, and uh, good luck with everything in the future. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. It is time now for the Skittles Room, where we talk to people briefly who are doing interesting things in and around U.S. chess. And I'm pleased to welcome to the show our brand new creative director, Frankie Butler. Frankie, welcome to Cover Stories with Chess Life. Thank you, and hello. Now, I said brand new creative director, but uh, you have been our art director going back to 2006. It's been a long road we've ha- we've shared together. That's right. It really has. Um, it's amazing to me that I've actually worked for U.S. Chess for, um, what was it, 13 years now? Yeah, it, exactly. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> coming up on that anniversary fast, uh, I think you started in July of 06. Uh, mm-hmm. which interestingly enough was the last time we did a women's issue, which is why you're on the show today because uh, this this May edition was our, our special women's issue. And now that I think about it too, it was Jennifer Shahadi who actually recommended you to uh, the publications department. That's right. She and I go way back. We were actually neighbors uh, and we lived next door to each other in Brooklyn um, back in the day. <laughs> And you had a pretty extensive work history in graphic design uh, in, in New York City. Uh, you did some pretty interesting things. I know you. I, I seem to remember that you did ad work for uh, the New Yorker. Is that correct? Uh, not the New Yorker. Perhaps you're thinking about. Oh wait, I'm sorry. Yes, I did. I worked for HarperCollins Publishers for a couple of years, and uh, uh, my title there was the design manager. And I worked in the advertising and promotions department, and so we did a lot of advertising for their authors and. Uh, Many of those ads went into the New Yorker, the New York Times, the New York Review of Books, you know, those sorts of publications. And when you came to work for U.S. Chess, what did you know about the chess world coming in? Well, nothing. (laughs) I really didn't know anything at all. I've certainly been educated at this point, though. (laughs) <laughs> right. And, and that leads to my, uh, my main question is, I don't think people realize uh, just what the special challenges are of putting together a chess magazine like Chess Life. Uh, can you speak to that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, when, when you're working with a lot of text and diagrams, um, you know, the layouts can get pretty challenging um, when you're working in a three column format with lots of things jumping around all over the place. And so that as a designer, that takes a bit of getting used to. Yeah, and and all of these things that we've learned over the years, I think, came together very nicely in this women's issue. And uh, you know, we've had a lot going on with women in chess as we've made this real hard push to increase the numbers of women in our organization. And uh, you, you've played a key role in that. Uh, one of one of the things you've I have, I, yeah, I've really enjoyed. Uh, I've really enjoyed contributing. Um, to, to that um, 
because you know right right from the start when I first started learning about chess it was apparent that uh, chess is a, a game or a sport that's mostly uh, played by by men and so it's just it's always been great along the way to see so many female chess players doing well and I think that um what is what's happening now which is you know sort of being spearheaded by Jen Shahadi in her new role um is is really amazing and and uh what we're hoping is that more women will be inspired by this whole new thing that that we're doing now that the women have their own logo <laughs> which you designed right which I designed yes and we did that we, we based it on our U.S. chess logo and um which as people know is two shades of blue and so for the women's one we we specifically steered away from making it too girly didn't want it to look pastel or pink and, and so what we went for instead was um red and black because those are very strong bold colors and we wanted to sort of with the logo try and say you know here come the women we're going to try to level the playing field here we're going to empower them and, and give them their own really strong logo um so that's that that was the inspiration behind that and uh I understand it's been quite well received. <laughs> yeah, and you may not even know this, but um, so I had just returned from our national junior high championship in Dallas, and the uh, at the U.S. Chess Federation sales bookstore, they had a lot of this women's themed merchandise using the logo. And my understanding is that the the sales were really good. In fact, they sold out of I think the uh, ball cap with the women's logo on it. I actually did hear about that, and I love that news. And um, what I've proposed now is, is uh, some, some more designs, even though that baseball cap was – I didn't design that, but I have now suggested some other color schemes and, and other other merchandise, which um, hopefully will will be just as big of a hit, you know. I, I really think that um, the ladies need a black baseball cap with the red and white logo. I think that's going to be the next one, so – we can get ready for that to sell out too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be great. And and that women's logo design kind of informed the overall design of this May chess life, correct? That's right. Well, what we did, because we we happened to have, you know, the, the launch of the logo coinciding with, with our women's issue. And so because the logo is red, um, what we did instead was we sort of changed the accents in the magazine, like, you know, the different little headers and, and the page numbers and all sorts of other details. We changed those things so that they were also red, so it could all sort of tie together into this uh, logo launch and magazine for women, which, you know, pretty pretty cool to be able to do that. I haven't done anything like that. It hasn't happened since 2006, as you say. <laughs> so, yep, it's a lot of fun. Readers, I hope you like uh, the, the visuals in this magazine. Uh, one thing I'd like to especially point out is uh, a photo essay by photographer extraordinaire David Lotta uh, that's on special paper even. We printed that on cover stock, so it just looks that that much more incredible. His, his photos are amazing. It was so, we're so lucky to be able to use so many of them in, in that issue. And, uh, we, you know, we've, um, we've managed to include a large number of our women players, which... Uh, pretty great <laughs> absolutely well frankie thank you for joining us and i have scheduled you for our uh, next uh, interview in 13 years again <laughs> <laughs> okay sounds good okay i'll bye talk bye. to you then okay bye, bye. Thank you for listening to the May edition of Cover Stories with Chess Life. Our podcast will return next month when we will be talking to Steve Doyle, the organizer of the U.S. Amateur Team East. U.S. Chess is a 501c3 nonprofit membership organization whose mission is to empower people, enrich lives, and enhance communities through chess. To become a member, 
Go to uschess.org and click on the Join button where you can find a membership option that is right for you. As a member, you enjoy rated play, print and digital copies of Chess Life or Chess Life Kids, and you help US Chess grow the game. If you are already a member, consider clicking on the Donate button at uschess.org. Thank you and good chess.